Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this here podcast, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If at any time you are inspired by this message, please leave us a review, like, share, upload to your Instagram stories, do all of the things so we can get this message of experience, strength, and hope out to those who need to hear it. So today's guest, I know I say this every week, is a very special guest. Um, The reason why this one is special is because she became, she came highly recommended by Kelsey. You all know Kelsey. She is the one who has been behind the scenes making these episodes sound great and our guests sound great. And now she hosts Studying the Steps. And so be on the lookout for her first episode of that. But anyways, so Kelsey came into work one day and said, I have the perfect person for the podcast. Her name is Lexi and she had the coolest dress on with these skulls. And then, you know, of course said wonderful things about your recovery and your energy as well. But I remember specifically the dress. And so anytime somebody that I respect recommends someone, I have to get them on. So thank you, Lexi, so much for being here today. And um, as we talked about, the first question is just always to introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you choose to, what your drinking looked like, and what led you to get sober. Thank you. That's a lot to live up to. (laughs) Hi, uh, my name is Lexi. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, My sobriety date is July 11th, 1992, and I got sober when I was 19 years old, so I'm a lot older than that now, (laughs) Um, gratefully. You know, I do have a home group. Uh, I'm involved in recovery, and I have a sponsor, and I sponsor other women, um, which has been really important to the fact that I'm still sober today. What it's like, what happened, what it's like now, you know, I honestly didn't even start drinking as young as I probably should have. I remember my first drink at 14 and I was with a group of friends and I was at a party and I always felt kind of uncomfortable in social situations. I felt like I wasn't good enough. I wasn't popular enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't whatever. And I was with the friends and we're at the party and everybody else was drinking from the keg at this really cool house and these this the coolest girl in school and I started drinking because they were drinking and it tasted horrible but I just kept doing it anyway because if they had jumped off a cliff I would have jumped off a cliff also and I remember after about the first one feeling this just amazing feeling of like just sheer lightness and feeling like better than I had my entire life Um, I've heard about it explained in recovery as crossing the line from normal drinking to alcoholic drinking. I didn't have that much normal drinking. I do remember occasionally having sips of alcohol and once this happened and I crossed that line, every drinking instance happened after that was done with the purpose to get intoxicated and to drink until I got drunk and one was never enough. And there was never enough and there was never enough money to buy the alcohol or to steal the alcohol and it was almost as if over that weekend i changed from a girl who listened to her parents and wanted to do well in school i was in ap classes i had straight a's i studied and over the weekend it became like okay when's the next party when are we going to get the alcohol how much can we get Where am I going to get the money to buy the alcohol? Whose parents are we going to steal from? What are we going to do? And it was on. And I immediately that weekend lied to my parents. I remember my mom saying, oh, where had you been? Or she smelled the alcohol. And I said, oh, well, I had a little bit. You know, I had a sip. And 
it just the lie came so readily because in my head I knew I had to protect this in any length and I needed to be able to drink the way I needed to drink. You know, childhood, I like to, when I came in here, I remember blaming a lot of people like, sure, we moved around a lot. I, there was dysfunction in my household. Um, I moved from multiple countries uh, to the U.S. when I was seven or eight. It was very challenging to have to be in another culture and then have to move to the U.S. speaking. I had spoke with an English accent. It was very awkward. So there were all these things I like to say, oh, and I went to a school where I was kind of picked on and I wasn't that popular. And so I, I would always think like, oh, well, the reason I came to be like this is because, you know, of all these things that happened to me. The thing was, is I have a little brother, grew up in the same house, same dysfunction, and he went to school and did his homework and graduated and did the normal things right. and listened. And I was the one who, that day, everything changed and I began to drink alcoholically. Um, we were living in Chicago at the time and, you know, immediately I was doing things to drink that, you know, finger tapping, going to unsafe neighborhoods. Um, we'd go to this club in the city where we'd get drunk in the car and then go into this like underage dance club. And so there was a lot of it that was kind of fun and exciting. And I felt like I was finally enjoying life for uh, once. Can I ask you a question? Sure. What's finger tapping? Oh, gosh. That's like where you go to uh, someone in, the, in a grocery store and you say, excuse me, will you go buy me alcohol? Like, because you're only 14 and you look 14. Oh, <laughs> so we called those hey misters. Oh, okay. Yes. It's a regional thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we did that too. Just called them something different. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I was like finger tapping. That sounds like some sort of like spiritual meditation thing. No, I don't know. It's, it's meditating where I know I need to get this alcohol right. and I will do whatever it takes. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Um, so the big turning point for me came when we moved from Chicago to Hong Kong and when wow. I was 16. And it was like alcoholics paradise. There's no drinking age. Uh, you could buy alcohol at any store legally. You could walk really? around the Really? No streets. drinking age? No drinking age. Some bars would instill an 18 or over. But the metrics, they, they did no carding. There was no, I mean, this one bar we went to, it was all the American school kids, that was our bar. The people that owned it knew these are all the high school kids. They didn't care. Their money came from us. So they, wow. we had our bars and our regulars. And um, and I loved that lifestyle. I was going to say, I that sounds like so much fun. It was like <laughs> For I me, took I was a it to it like a fish and water. But ultimately, I'm an alcoholic. Right. And... You know, the first few times it was fun, and then it became fun with problems. And within the first semester of my junior year of high school, I was already having loads of problems and questioning whether I was an alcoholic or not. And a friend of mine who had stopped drinking and was an alcoholic, she was the only person I knew, said, well, you know, why don't you just go to the bar and try drinking just one drink an hour? And that sounded totally reasonable. I was like, that is an awesome idea. And she and my other friend were like, we'll watch for you. We'll keep an eye on you. We'll help you be accountable. So I go to the bar. Let's say it's 7 o'clock. I get my first drink. You know, drink it, 7.05. Right, yeah. Oh, wow. That's a long way to 8 o'clock. So yeah. I excuse myself to go to 7-Eleven to go buy cigarettes, I said. Bought some beers or something there, down those, and then came back at 8 o'clock to get my next drink. So I didn't even last one hour and didn't really question it why I couldn't make that. I just remember thinking, oh, well, you know, this is silly. I'm, you know, yes, I like to drink. Yes, I like to have fun. But, you know, a lot, there were a lot of things I didn't do. So there were a lot of kids in Hong Kong that were addicted to heroin. And there, um, I would kind of say, well, gosh, like, I don't have a problem. I mean, like, they have a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would hang out with a lot of them and be like, oh, I feel really sorry for my friends who have this really severe problem. Drink, drink, drink. They really are lucky they have a friend like me. For sure. I was the same way <laughs> in high school, too. Yeah. And, but I wouldn't, I, so I, in a way, I thought I was doing it right. Like, I just drank and smoked cigarettes. So same. there was nothing wrong with me. I was the good girl in the problem was is the doing drinking a lot of alcohol makes bad decisions and freedom in a bar there were a lot of interactions with 
gentleman, shall we say, that was not being a lady. And I had never had any kind of a boyfriend or anything like that. And that was part of my disease was like feeling so less than that I would seek this attention from men. Mm -hmm. Um, In those days, it wasn't really that frowned upon for a 20-something, 30-something year old man to be going after a 16 or 17-year-old girl. What? At least in Asia, it wasn't like... You know, there was a 35-year-old that I was dating, and I look back now, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. What did your parents say? Well, they didn't know about any of it. Okay. So they just knew, you know, all the high school kids were kind of given some freedom, were out on, and I never really brought any boys home. I had a lot of different boyfriends. Well, and I, and by boyfriend, (laughs) let's just say, you know, acquaintances, like, hookups, like whatever they call it nowadays. But um, it was it was pretty sad that I just, and, and I'd wake up in the next morning and I'd feel so bad about myself. And people would talk about me at school and say, oh, did you hear what she did? And I would cry and think like, why, you know, why are they saying these things about mm-hmm. me? Because inside that was not who I was or who I wanted to be. Yeah. And ultimately it would just lead me to drinking more, to cover up those feelings. Mm-hmm to like get that ease and comfort back to have that fun and that's what I continued to chase. I went to college in California at so moved to California at 18 and had this intent that I'm going to move to a new country. I'm going to turn a new leaf. I'm going to put myself in the study dorm. I didn't even enter there was a party dorm and then there was the serious dorms. And so I signed up for the serious dorms because that was going to keep me from drinking. Right. And I want to say I don't I didn't even last to the first day of school before I found all the friends at the party dorm and I was just partying and drinking and doing all my whatnot elsewhere and then I'd come crawling home to the serious dorm. <laughs> chased out my roommate after about a month. She she wanted to study right. <laughs> and wake up at a good time. And so she moved out. I ended up paying for a double, double single and just kind of went on a downhill path. My second semester, I had kind of a mental breakdown and was committed to a mental hospital at 18. So I was 18 years old, second semester of my freshman year, barely hanging on grade-wise, but still enrolled, so can't be that bad, but wanting to die. And I was really willing to admit I had a problem, that mental health was an issue. Mm -hmm. I needed to address it. I was crazy. I was okay with that. But when they interviewed me at Chemical Dependency, I remember thinking, well, I can't answer their questions because they're going to think I'm an alcoholic, and I know I'm not an alcoholic. I am mentally ill. I, I would have accepted any mental illness diagnosis. If they had said, here, we're going to put you in this straitjacket, okay, you got it. If they had said, you know, we need to do a frontal lobotomy, fine, let's do that. But if they had said you're an alcoholic, that would have been a no deal, a deal breaker. Oh my God, I, same. I, I kind of joke around saying anytime I got a new mental health diagnosis, I wore it like a badge of honor because it was like, see, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I just have this, 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 and this. Like, like you said, was willing to be crazy, but not an alcoholic. Well, and I, a lot of it went to the blame to my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, they get a call when I ended up in the hospital. You know, your daughter's done it, had a 5150, which is like a forced hold. She And they came flying over. My mom flew over. My dad's horribly embarrassed. I remember being ashamed. You know, he was, didn't want people to know. Yet I didn't worry about his reputation when I was drinking all over Hong Kong and mm-hmm. embarrassing the heck out of him there. But, oh, well, I've been, you know, I've embarrassed my family. And and I like to point the blame. Like, well, you guys really screwed up. And they they were, they felt very guilty. And, and I milked that for a long for time. Sure. I ended up here because you guys are so screwed up. <laughs> And it was just my manipulative behavior, Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, and not looking at the alcohol. I mean, yes, there were depression issues and anxiety and other things that I still struggle with to this day, but the the alcohol was still there in the background. Ultimately, I did end up drinking after I left the hospital. I remember leaving there thinking, I will never drink again. Alcohol and Lexi don't mix. Not an alcoholic, but just it doesn't work. Right. And then there was this thought in the back of my head that said, well, maybe on your 21st birthday 
Well, a week later, <laughs> my only friend left by this point because the people at school didn't want to hang out with the girl who got committed to the loony bin. Um, my only friend left was my roommate from the loony bin who was 30 and lived in town and she and I were hanging out. She said, you know, why don't you just have a glass of wine with me? I'm only going to give you one. And so that should be okay. And then you should be fine. And that sounded like a great plan to me. So I had my one glass. Uh, it was lovely. It was very drink. I think I drank it the way one is supposed to drink wine. <laughs> I got in the car, drove home, went to sleep, woke up the next morning and thought, see, I'm not an alcoholic. Right. And it was back on. The last, two, it was two or three months was the last bit. And I did not, I rarely drew a sober breath those last few months. I had been withdrawn from classes, so I only had one class that I was required to show up for. And that was, that was tough. So in my mind, I'm still holding it together because I'm making my one class, but I'm drinking all the time. And I mean, I remember rolling into school having slept an hour, probably reeking of alcohol, wearing the pajama bottoms that you get from the hospital, you know, the, the hospital jammies, <laughs> with a trench coat over it. I just popped out my retainer, put in a stick of gum, and ran to class with my trench coat and my jammies on, probably just reeking of alcohol, and thinking, you know, hey, I, I made it. I go to classes. You yeah. know, that's... <laughs> yep. So... Um, the bottom for me was back in Hong Kong for the summer. And um, again, I was thinking, this is great. I've got a whole summer to drink in a country where they appreciate drinking. <laughs> and I can just drink how I want, when I want. It's cheap, it's easy. Um, my parents had a lot of club memberships so I could just go to the club and that was a big strategy to drink more is just go to one of their clubs, charge up a bunch on the, the bar bill, and then go to the bar. So I had less alcohol I'd actually pay for myself. And then I'm like, oh, well, I only had two drinks because the drinks that my parents paid for didn't really count. And there was this, this uh, guy that I was obsessed with. I'd like to say, again, dating, but, you know, more of a hostage situation mm -hmm. where, yes. you know, he expressed interest. We fooled around for two weeks until he realized how crazy I was. And then there was him running through the door, like trying to get away from me. And I, I just, I could not deal with that. I remember just not willing to accept that he didn't want to be with me. I get that. Yeah. So I wore my cutest little, like it was Madonna. I remember Madonna era, 19, early nineties. I wore this like lace bustier that actually I think was underwear, <laughs> um, <laughs> a pair of Levi's. And, you know, went to the club with my with my friends because I'm like, oh, well, he's going to see how hot I am and of he's going to want me back. And I remember kind of flirting with him, coming up to him. And at one point he said, Lexi, get the F away from me. And there was this moment of like, OK, I'm throwing myself at this guy, you know, for anything and everything. And. I can't even, that can't even happen. Like how low have I gotten? Right. And I had this moment where I saw myself 10 years later and it's gonna just get worse. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even that bad of a situation. I mean, being hauled away to the loony bin was way worse. I'd had some really demoralizing things. There was instances throughout my drinking where I did not give consent and things happened without mm -hmm. my consent. And that still wasn't enough. But this moment, just getting turned down by my quote unquote love of my life, <laughs> just knocked me down. And so shortly after that, I ended up in a recovery in a 12-step meeting. But a, a therapist had suggested I go. And So I, you were drunk whenever you were throwing yourself at this guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was no me and men talking without alcohol involved. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of like I totally relate because you're like, there's so much worse things that could happen. But when you're young, that is the worst thing that can happen, mm -hmm. you know? Because I, I mean, same experiences with like being sexually assaulted, that sort of thing. Psych wars. I mean, that started happening when I was like 14. But that feeling that you get when you're rejected, mm -hmm. especially when you're being desperate. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing worse, really. It really was. I remember the last 
bits of drinking because I, I always never had enough money for the alcohol I wanted to for drink. Sure. Yeah. And so I'd say, oh, will you buy me a drink? And I mean, it would take a long time to find a guy that would buy me a drink because they all knew my number. <laughs> <They> all... <laughs> so I'd have to get strangers. Like, of you course. Know, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was pretty low. Again, I could have gone lower. I, I did not, a lot of coming into recovery at, I was I just 18, just turning 19. There were a lot of people that had a lot of drugs in their story and I had done no illegal drugs. I took prescriptions, not according to prescription. Mm -hmm. and, I, and in my mind that was okay. Of course. Um, because that was medicine, yes. you know, yeah. aspirin. Yeah, <laughs> use the same lies myself. So. so I had that. I had a psychiatrist that prescribed a lot of stuff for me. And, and, you know, legitimately, I possibly had a need for it, but I did not take it according to prescription. And I looked at a lot of friends that used a lot of illegal substances, and I was like, see, I don't have a problem. I've seen those movies on TV, mm -hmm. and the kids are always like selling, like, selling their parents' jewelry to buy the drugs, and I don't do that, so I'm not bad. There's no way I have a problem. So when I went to this recovery meeting, it was ironically, miraculously, a young people's meeting. Oh, you weren't planning on going to a young people's no, meeting? No, it oh, was, wow. that was the meeting I was going that night. Oh, look, it's a young people's meeting. It was in Hong Kong with other folks who could drink the way I drank, which is why I feel like I, I was able to come in and stay sober, get sober at a young age was because I had the bar at my disposal. I was mm -hmm. a bar fly at 18. Um, I loved bars. I loved the smell of bars. I loved the characters you'd meet at bars. My favorite thing is going to a bar, meeting a stranger, telling them your life story, getting them to buy you drinks, and then never seeing them again, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was this bar fly. So then I go to this room with other people my age telling my story. There was a girl there who gave me her number and she said, Every time I'd say, well, I never did drugs. And she'd say, well, I didn't do drugs either. And she had four years sober. And I'd say, well, you know, I only, you know, I'm only 18. And she's like, well, I got sober at 18. So there were all these, oh, okay. So you can be an alcoholic without drugs. <laughs> I didn't. And you can be an alcoholic at 18. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, listen to the similarities, not the differences. Because if I was looking for differences, I could find them all Absolutely. over the board. Yeah. But similarities every single one even a girl that was a straight heroin addict if i listened to the similarities they were there mm -hmm. and so when i realized that i was like oh wow like okay i maybe have some mental health issues but i'm also an alcoholic <laughs> i could didn't admit it for several months it took me a while coming into recovery to be able to say yeah this is the problem and to say it at the meeting i'm lexi i'm an alcoholic getting a sponsor and then ultimately I went back to California where I was going to college and went into the meeting there got a sponsor got a bunch of phone numbers started regularly attending recovery meetings even though at that time there weren't a whole lot of young people and it was really awkward and uncomfortable there everybody in the room was so old at, in this area in California I lived and when I think about it now they were like in their 30s or 40s which is like younger than I am now oh gosh well how did you come to accept that you were an alcoholic there was a very significant moment where I my family I hadn't started school yet I had about two months sober had gotten a chip at one of the recovery meetings in uh, Santa Cruz where we were staying and there was a lady there who was, my grandmother had actually helped get sober. My grandmother, who could have been one of us, noticed that the neighbor was drinking in the morning, suggested she go try, go to recovery. This woman got sober and I knew it, I had her number. And I was at a, um, we were staying at a house near the beach and my dad and I got into a fight about something and at 7 a.m. He was yelling at me and I was really ticked and like, you know, how dare he yell at me in his own house? Like, how dare he? I will show him. And I grab a beer and I'm about to pop the top. And the, the voice in my head said, call somebody before you take the drink. They tell you that in recovery. Call somebody first. So I thought, well, I'm going to call that lady Kathy and then I'm going to drink. And I started talking to her. I cried. She said, meet me on the beach. We walked on the beach for two hours. I talked, told her my story. 
and I remember just saying, well, what do you think? She's like, yeah, you're probably one of us. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and that was the moment where I fully just, I guess, accepted it, you know? Mm -hmm. And she was a bit older, so hearing from someone who wasn't young, someone who did drink for decades, and then said like, yeah, you're one of us. It made me just like, okay, I need to keep doing this thing. You know, cause I had had enough of the hope and I had had enough of my life had gotten a little better to want to keep getting, to keep going further and, and to want to get more. Nice. So when did you start? I mean, cause we were just talking about um, before this about young people's meetings and you know, how young women need good role models and that sort of thing to be there whenever they come in and did you have any I guess was she one of those women for you she was and and funnily enough the there wasn't a huge young people's group going on in the town I lived in in California so I went to quote-unquote old people's meetings pretty much and kind of looked down my nose at a lot of young people's recovery when I was really young which would have been very you know, useful at the time. But in my head, I thought, you know, I'm really mature. <laughs> I was here in old people's AA. I was getting commitments, getting involved. And I really was dead set on wanting to be mature and be grown. And I thought that if I was just in a relationship, that that would make me whole and make me recovered. And so I ended up marrying a guy and getting getting with a guy in the program and and he was really involved in young people's and I used to kind of think like oh well they're just so ridiculous and I'm so uber mature and I kind of stayed away from it and didn't see the value in it for a long time and when that marriage failed I it was almost like I and it, I was 26 27 at that time and started going and attending young people's meetings. And by this point, I'm not one of the youngest ones in the room anymore. Right. And I started attending some young people's conferences. And the very first one I went to, I remember just being horrified, like, oh, they're so rude. I can't believe this. I'm never coming back again. And then I ended up on a host committee planning a conference. And I have been to so many conferences, I can't even keep track. And I'd, I want to say the last one, there was a, a Texas State Young People's Conference, and I was definitely in my 40s that I attended, and, you know, again, probably one of the older ones, but really enjoy, you know, really, even to this day, enjoy the energy and don't really feel my age anymore. So what was so neat is that even come, you know, starting to get involved in young people's recovery at 30 and is when I really got involved young people in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous were people in their mid-30s to 40s. People that were 19, 20 did not get recovered, did not get sober right. at those in those years. So now the fact that we've got teens, we have 13, 14-year-olds that are getting sober and staying sober, that I was 19 and I stayed sober, There's there are more of us. We are out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my boss, Chloe, she got sober at 18. You know, one of my favorite speakers, her name is Deb H. She got sober at 15. And it is, it's like a big thing. But I, I got sober at 27 and I thought that that was way too young. <laughs> you know, that like, I, I remember this and I get reminded of it by this one guy all the time. Anytime I pick up a chip or anything, he always reminds me of the time where I cried in a meeting. It was like, I'm too young to get sober. But yeah, like you said, people get sober young all the time um, and life's not over. What I, what I, I used to think that it was harder for us. This is something I've come to realize as I get older, that being young, it, 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 and there are some aspects that are tough because, you know, going out on your 21st birthday is different when you're in recovery. I actually went and rented a car. <laughs> I was getting my car repaired and I needed to do something to, Ooh, I'm 21. So I rented a car and it was pretty exciting. So I did get to enjoy my 21st birthday sober. That's awesome. Um, I was at a meeting that was a very, 7 a.m. I was at a meeting because it was like, wow, I can go to like any store now and buy alcohol and I don't want to. And that was, that was, it was pretty cool. But, and then the, the whole thing, young people say, oh, well, how am I going to get through my wedding with toasts and blah, blah, blah. Well, now I've been married twice sober 
and divorced, and you can get through it sober. Well, you can get through it drunk too. <laughs> um, I like to say that I got through my divorce and I, with a lot, a, not much grace and dignity because I wasn't really working a great program, but I was able to clean up a lot of that wreckage from that that divorce that, you know, if I were to run into my ex-husband, it would not be an awkward situation. Was he in the program too? He was in the program. Both of them? Uh, my current husband is is not an alcoholic. Okay. He's he's a normie. He's one of the ones that has a bottle of alcohol that's been there for 10 years. and Weird. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have a question though, because you only drank for like five years, right? It was about four. Four years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you ever have that come in, especially because like you'll have people, I mean, come in that drink for 20 years or 10 years or however. So did you ever have those thoughts of like, I only drank for four years? Like, have you ever had those lingering thoughts that maybe I'm not an alcoholic? Have those ever come to mind? And what have you done with those? Well, since I've worked all 12 steps and had that spiritual awakening, the, the, the desire and the urge constantly has been removed. But that's not to say that those thoughts can't kind of creep back sure. in in hard times. Um, and there have and sometimes in really good times. Like I was in this post first divorce relationship where, you know, it was probably my healthiest relationship to that date. Um, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but, you know, it was a lot healthier and he was a normie and he had mentioned how he liked to go to Napa and do wine tasting and I remember thinking, oh, that's so elegant, you know, even though when I really think through wine tasting, I mean, I'd just be going, I'd be sucking it down and getting wasted and wouldn't really care how it tasted. Yeah, that's how wine tasting always looked for me too. So I don't know. And and I know that I can think through that drink and think, okay, yeah, I did one sip and then I'd be, I'd be out. Mm -hmm. So um, I, but there was a moment I remember thinking like, you know, I'm older I'm mature. I'm with someone who's very responsible. I'm a different person. And it was a frightening, it was like a 10 minute time period where I literally was thinking, maybe this is, maybe you're fine. Maybe you're okay. And I'm so grateful that something else, like, I don't know whether it was, you know, a, a higher power came into my head and said, you better call somebody and talk about this thought. And that's what I found when I get those thoughts that creep in because they do or the dreams where I'm drinking and I'm and it's okay or um, you know something's really painful and I cannot handle the pain anymore and a drink would really take the edge off um, I call or text or something to someone in recovery um, usually the first person I reach out to is my sponsor sometimes people just show up I mean that's been like you put yourself in the middle and there have been times where I have isolated and I've been alone. Uh, one time I was so suicidal and I was sober, but really like thinking about how I was going to check out. And this one lady who had never been to my apartment before, but knew I lived, she knew where I lived, stopped by just to, oh, that's where Lexi lives. I'm going to stop by and say hi. Wow. And she came to the door and opened up and I'm sitting there chain smoking it's a big cloud I hadn't bathed in several days and I had been like thinking strategically about how I could kill myself and make it look like an accident was kind of what was going on in my head how old were you at this time I was 21 wow so I was a few years sober and I I hadn't really been talking to anybody and she came in and saw probably just the mess that was my apartment and said what's going on and you know i still have mental health issues and i had stopped there was a in the early 90s there was this thing that oh if you take any kind of antidepressant you're not sober some people believe that i i've heard that before i thought it was just rumors or something but that was was really really, a thing there, there were some that were really strong about it and the sponsor i had at the time kept telling me that she didn't feel i was sober and so there were i had gone off the medication and I had been fine for a while until I wasn't fine wow and she this woman walked in and she knew about everything and she's like are you taking medicaid are you taking your medication have you talked to your psychiatrist and I hadn't been and I immediately went and talked to the psychiatrist got back on the medication and look at that moment as like you know I, I mean it was like why would why did she stop by that day 
I just recently, she was driving through Texas about a month or two ago and we got to reconnect and she's still sober and I'm sober. And I look at her a lot as like one of the angels that are the reason I'm still here. So So beautiful. Are you an alcoholic woman in recovery seeking connection? Maggie's Women's Group is a fellowship group for women in recovery to build friendships and connect with the community at the Magdalene House. Maggie's Women's Group is open to any alcoholic woman in recovery, not just Maggie's alumna. To find out how to get involved and connect with us on Facebook, please visit magdalenehouse.org slash Maggie's Women's Group. And I mean, how, I mean, I was just thinking about this, like that means that that woman had to have listened to her intuition to stop by that day. Definitely. You know, and like how many times do we get those thoughts put on us and do we always listen to them? I know I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but like hearing those things are always like reminders of why we do need to listen to our intuition when stuff like that happens. Well, and also just they talk about, in recovery they talk about the the constant you know being of service to other people Mm -hmm. and the constant you know constant thought of others getting out Mm -hmm. of ourselves and thinking about others if that becomes a regular practice then i'm texting or calling or stopping by friends houses throughout the week and that keeps me in the middle yeah and she had must have she was visiting another member of the program who lived in my apartment complex and probably just thought, oh I may as well just drive stop by and see where Lexi lives wow and you know and I've done that where I've called or texted someone just say hey I haven't heard from you in a while what's going on and situations are, are similar where they're like oh I'm really glad you reached out to me for sure so so good well so we talked about earlier, well, you, you mentioned mistakes in recovery, which is one of my favorite <laughs> things. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I make a lot of mistakes and I like to hear other people who do too. But do you want to elaborate on that? Well, that would be a whole nother podcast <laughs> if we went through like all my employment mistakes, uh, relationship mistakes. What I find is you take away the alcohol and you still have the ism. For sure. And without a sufficient substitute, which is entirely impossible to practice 24 seven. Like I'm human and sometimes it's like, you know what, I just wanna go shopping and spend all this money or I wanna, I want that guy to pay attention to me and like I don't care if he's the wrong choice. Or um, for me a lot, I kept choosing, I kept getting jobs just to get jobs and not really being the right fit, you know, not being in the right profession. Um, so I lose the job. And then I'd feel down about myself and, and, and it would, so there were all these things that I kept looking for outside things to kind of fix and heal and, mm-hmm. and it, and it didn't work. And over and over again, like, especially with relationships, like I just made a lot of bad decisions that changed the course of my life. Like that, you know, I made a bad relationship decision, lost a job and then had to move to San Jose. And so like I had to literally, cause I needed a new job and that was where I got a new job. And, um, and then actually lost another job at one point and lost an apartment over another relationship. Like it just kind of became a thing. And there were, you know, I remember about 15 years sober just being like, wow, like I'm in my thirties, I've got 15 years sober and I still like can't really have a functioning relationship. I had a sponsor at that time who was really hardcore. They called her like a big book thumper. And I really needed someone at that time to like really whip me into shape. And we were talking about this inventory and I had done a few inventories with her, but we had talked about this like relationship inventory. And she's like, if we're gonna do this, then you're gonna follow through with six and seven after this and start making different decisions, like realizing what your defects are and make different decisions so that you don't continue this, these same mistakes. Mm-hmm. And if you do, I don't want to talk about them anymore. <laughs> so I was like, well, alrighty. <laughs> so I get this inventory out and I start, you know, it was a relationship only inventory and we're going through it and name after name is coming on the list. And, 
we got, I mean, I want to say I got like half to three quarters through and she's like, okay, you know, I have somewhere to be or anything on here is anything different than what we've already heard <laughs> over and over and over. And I said, no. And she's like, okay, then I'm good. We need to go on. <laughs> she didn't even want to hear the rest of them because it was literally just the same, same, same thing, different guy. Ultimately, we came up with like, okay, these are the old actions I took. Well, these are the new actions that, you know, actually go on dates, like get to know somebody. Um, little simple things that maybe a normal person might be able to figure out that took me a lot of time and a lot of mistakes to like, okay, this is how we need to do things. So what were some of the six and seven character defects, old stuff that you did? And then what were the new actions that you took? You mentioned one, like going on dates, but what, like, what else, what did that look like? Well, (laughs) so just... Uh, and I'm trying to make this, keep this PG. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, I, again, I was someone that was just looking for validation mm-hmm. and, you know, following my gut and not following my heart and not following something else, you know? Um, and so we just had, we really wrote out specific rules of like, you know, no, you know, certain activities for however many dates like we wrote those things out and you stuck to them and I I stuck to them for a while and I thought okay well now I'm gonna meet my soulmate and I didn't like I actually got a lot of rejections because there are a lot of men when you say you know what I want to be an exclusive relationship who say well I don't so thank you it's nice to meet you right and it's very it's very frustrating when you're like oh well I'm supposed that's supposed to be my answer and she used to always say I was on the hunt, like you were always on the hunt. And then people say, well, stop looking. So then you stop looking and then you're still just like. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Well, now it's supposed to happen because I stopped. Stop looking. Yeah. So I'm going to walk into Starbucks and like Prince Charlie's going to meet me. And, you know, it just didn't work out that way. I had to have, I, I got into this other relationship that, like I said, was 75 to 80% better than the past, but it still wasn't the right thing. There's the same, uh, in the 12 and 12 uh, of AA, there's, in the third tradition, they talk about uh, sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. Mm-hmm. I've heard and that. And that has been so true. Like, yes, this is good. This is better. I'm making better choices. But is this the right situation for me? Is this all my ideals? Like, are these following my ideals? Do I need to settle? Mm-hmm. And she used to always tell me, if you have to give yourself the sales pitch, like, well, he's this, well, mm. he's this, then you're selling yourself short. And she was right every time. Absolutely. Every time. I was literally just talking to a sponsee about this the other day because she has this relationship and she was like, you know, all of my other exes, they were abusive and they were this and they were that. And he's not, I said, okay. And it's back to the same thing, right? Like just because he's not as bad as you as your past relationships doesn't make it good you know like Mm -hmm. and that's what we come in with right or even in sobriety it's like well what it's not as bad as it was before Mm -hmm. but just because it's not as bad as it was before doesn't make it doesn't make it great yeah you know definitely you know well he pays for dinner you know he pays for dinner but he's really kind of mean to me well, you know, you, you can't expect everything when you're 35 is kind of what I told mm. myself. And ultimately, I ended up single again and, you know, everything blew up again. And then I lost a job again. And I met my current husband. We had known each other through work and I had literally my whole life had imploded. And I'm sitting in my apartment that I wasn't going to be able to afford after the six month of pay ran out. We started, we started dating and he was living in Texas. I was in San Jose and within a few weeks, it just, it was the right situation. It was the right relationship. He wanted to call and text me every day. He called me his girlfriend. We met each other, you know, I'd go to fly to see him. He'd come to see me. It just was the right situation. And I remember, I, I think back now, like I, why did I think that you know, accepting bad treatment was okay. And it was, it was just this like battered, battered, low self-esteem mm-hmm. that you just accept. And that I just never felt that I was good enough for anything, anything where someone was just nice to me. 
Like, you know, and part of it, I think the guys just, you know, they wanted to leave and they didn't want to say like, hey, this isn't working out. So they just start being mean and like hope that you leave. <laughs> I had a lot of that happening. Little do they know. <laughs> right? Little, no, 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 no. I'm really going to make it yes. try. I'm going to like be better. And I'm going to make it work. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I finally like, you know, meet this guy and he wants kids and you know, everything like, and I moved to Texas and we're going to like start a family. And he's like, you know, you don't have to work. We can just have, have a family, which, you know, I really suck at work. (laughs) Like I have really not done well. So to like, just be a mom and which I fail at that too, but at least, you know, I'm better at being a mom than I am at an employee. I can tell you that. So we're, we're like getting married and I'm here in Texas and I did what the, you know, just like I did as a newcomer, I came to the meetings, I got lots of phone numbers, I got sponsees, I had this just, you know, huge fellowship around me within months of moving here to Dallas. At one point I had five or six sponsees when I had first moved here and we started this, I did this tradition study at my house and, and I was like, oh, I'm on fire. Like I'm, I'm doing this, I've got these girls I'm sponsoring, I'm doing all this stuff. And my husband and I were, were getting pregnant or trying to get pregnant and it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was a lot of, it was an uphill battle. And I remember finding, you know, getting a call that no, you're not pregnant and wanting to just crawl in a hole. And my husband who is not in recovery but understands it would be like, okay, you need to either get to a meeting, go to a yoga class or get out of here, but you are not gonna just lay in bed. And so I'd get up, go to a meeting, meet a sponsee. And, you know, I, I w- it was like, I didn't have a choice to just give up because, you know, oh, I have to meet the sponsee at seven o'clock. I can't sit in bed and cry. Right. Um, so, okay, I'm gonna go do this. And we finally get pregnant and you know, I'm, again, I've got this whole, like my gaggle of sponsees, I'm meeting friends here in Dallas, I'm, you know, pregnant finally, I'm 39, everything's great. And at my 18 week sonogram, they told me that she had some sort of fluid in her, uh, in her body cavity. And it's a condition called uh, pleural effusion fetal hydrops, which later I learned is, is 70 to 90%, 70 to 90% mortality rate. So it's very, it's, it's rare. Sometimes the case I had was very unknown of why I had it. I like to just think that, you know, part of me was like, this is punishment. Like, you know, this is, I was, I was doing so well. And then, you know, I always have had this struggled relationship with the higher power and I'm like, and, and I'm just being pulled down. And so from 18 months to 30, 18 weeks to 30 weeks when she was delivered, I didn't want people, oh, we should pray. And like, oh, if you just pray, it'll be okay. And I was so angry at God. And I know through recovery, I'm taught, you know, you don't pray for yourself. And that means like, you don't even pray, hey, God, make my baby live. You don't get to pray that. So I was angry and I didn't want to talk to him. I felt him up there and I was like, uh uh-uh. uh like mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't trust him and so I spent that whole 18 weeks to 30 weeks like just living in fear still attending my regular recovery at 30 weeks she was delivered and went to the NICU she had started to do a little better around day five and um, at day six they called us and they said you know you, you've got to get here um, and we were told she wasn't going to make it and that they thought that I just want to hold her while she died. And, you know, I've struggled with feeling worthy and feeling, you know, like I sometimes I just want to check out. And I was like, okay, I get it. Like, this is it. I'm tapping out. Like, I'm going to kill myself. And I said it out loud. And um, my husband started crying. And he's like, you can't leave me. And there was this moment where I just... And then my mom was there and she was crying and I could tell she was feeling pain and I saw her watching her baby girl suffer as I watched mine. So there was this moment where I just, I was, I felt like God was just lifting me through there to go pick her up and hold her. And I'm like, this is it, this is all you're gonna get. So we have to be here and we held her and she took her last breath. I just, I mean, 
it was it was so painful and to this day like there's levels of that pain that I keep hidden behind a wall because if I had to feel that day in day out I, I couldn't survive but the thing that was different this time is so I've struggled with God and higher power and God was there that's I hated him and I cursed at him and he was there and there was this moment where I was like you know what like it, he can handle all my hate he's so strong and he can handle all my hate and it doesn't matter how many times I say the f-bomb or you know I'm not gonna rot in hell like my the god of my understanding puts his arms around me and cries with me and um the people of you know my girls my sponsor the people of Alcoholics Anonymous showed up um, they came to my daughter's funeral they came to my house and brought meals. They showed up and drove me to meetings. And I kept going. I just kept going even though I'd sit there and cry. Um, there would be times that the topic would be, oh, God's will for us. And I'd be like, F God's will. Like God's will was killing my baby, you know? Um, and I, I honestly, I look back and I know that it was not me that got me through that period. It was my higher power that even though I had pushed him away, like he was there. And since then, like my faith in God has gotten so strong. It is so strong. I feel his presence like everywhere. And um, so subsequently my husband and I went through more fertility because again, like procreation is not a fun thing in our household. <laughs> it is science and lots of people and test tubes and catheters and all kinds of things and um, we uh, have subsequently had two sons so we have two I have two sons I've got to be a mom of a living of two living boys um, and I'm so grateful for that like I'm so grateful and you know I hear from people sometimes that their worst fear is losing a child and that's like the worst thing that they can imagine and I think getting through it and getting on the other side I mean there were times I would just laugh at a TV show and I'd feel guilty. Like, how can you ever laugh again? How can you ever do that again? You're, you're disrespecting her memory. But then, I, so I'm in recovery and there's other women who are losing their babies. There's other women who've lost children. There are other people, there are men, I've had men come up to me and say they lost their child. And my story, me, getting through this pain, like this horrific pain, can help someone else stay sober too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've also had to walk through the death of my dad, you know, my sweet father who, the relationship with my mom and dad was really awful. And then because of a program and because of mending those fences and making those amends and living differently, my mom and dad are, were so close to me and they moved here to Dallas when my dad was dying. And I was terrified because I knew he was going to die. But ultimately, I was able to walk through that with grace and dignity. I was able to be there 100% present and not be selfish and just run. Right. I was able to hold his hand and it was awful. I mean, and I would leave there like just crying in gratitude of like, thank God I'm sober. Thank God. I have this program and this this higher power that I felt all around me. I would say prayers out loud with my friends, which I am someone that's not all about God. I was very anti-religion and then it, it was during the pandemic and I actually wanted to go to church and I remember being like, I can't even go to church. Like I want to pray. I want to be closer to God and I, you know, at least the God of my understanding is everywhere. You know, it's not just in one building. Right. So. It's so true, though, like what you said, because I remember being at Citywide and this guy, Rick B., um, told a story and he told about his son dying. And, you know, and I thought it was a beautiful story and it touched me and he talked about the fellowship and everything. And um, and I had no idea that that story was going to be helpful to me later. I was just really touched by it. But um, my son's father died a few years ago and hearing... And his story came to my mind. And I was just like, if he can get through that, then I can get through this, you know? And it's just like the same, you know? And I just have so much admiration and, and respect for people who, because it is true, you hear the worst thing that can ever happen to you is the death of a child. Mm -hmm. 
And so to see people who can use their experience to be helpful to others and still have, and I get being mad at God too, because I was the same way, but to still have like that faith and that trust and that love for God, I think is even more inspiring than anything else. The the really big opening for me with my relationship with God, God is I found a support group for women that have lost children because AA had taught me like, you know, you find like-minded people that are struggling with what you're struggling with and they can help you. And this group of women that I met there had all lost children around the same time that I did. And then we all got pregnant at, again wow. at the same time. And so we had text groups where we'd share our fears or share the stupid things people would say to us because there are people that'll be like oh well you'll have an oh you're pregnant again that's great now it's all good (laughs) (laughs) oh you know it's okay that you lost one and it's like okay just you don't want to say it yeah (laughs) even when people said that to me about my dogs that i have lost i find it offensive let alone when someone says it about a child but ultimately i think people just want to say something to make you feel better i don't hold that animosity to them I just think luckily I have a bit more restraint of pen and tongue that I don't have to snap something nasty at them anymore but okay where was I going uh your relationship with God that's right okay so this group of women uh one of them was a friend of mine uh this friend of mine and we met for we were met for food one night and I was really upset about something someone had said to me and I'm cursing and you know, F this, F that, blah, blah, blah. And, and we had just gotten to know each other. And I was like, oh, okay, so what do you do? And she's like, well, I'm a, a minister. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh, and she's like, no, it's okay, it's okay. Right. And we t- she was someone I talked to a lot about faith. She's a Methodist minister. I was not Methodist, am not Methodist. But there, she lost her son. And that was something so huge because I for so long thought I am being punished for all the bad decisions I made for not being, you know, pure white when I got married. Like, I am being punished for sins, and that's why my daughter died. And then this woman who gives her life to her flock had the same thing happen. And and I remember her saying, you know, God doesn't reward and God doesn't, doesn't punish either. And, and And just that saying, like her saying that, and then me like saying F-bombs and her not saying, oh, oh my gosh, you know, she was my friend. And it was almost like we were two opposites, but we went through the same pain. Mm-hmm. It's and like that, what the big book says, right? People who normally would not mix, mm-hmm. but have this common problem and this common solution. I mean, that's what it reminds me of. Anyways. Yeah, it, it really, it really was. And we, our, our since our subsequent children are the same ages. So we got pregnant again at the same time. So we were able to walk through the pregnancies together and, you know, just certain things like that are just such a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and again, recovery has taught me that to look, you know, to reach out of myself. Like, even if I can't reach to a higher power, reach to people, reach to the other people around me that are willing to help me mm-hmm. because that is the power greater than myself when I can't find an actual power greater than myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had no idea that I was going to be crying on this episode today. <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, I mean, you're still really cool. But I was like, oh my God, this girl's so cool. It's so fun. I mean, you know, but all those things are still true. But I had no idea that this is where it was going to go. But we're like literally right at the top of the hour. Um, and I feel like this was amazing. So... First of all, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure we do? Oh, boy. I mean, there's there's so much <laughs> in the recovery. It, you know, my experiences in and out of the rooms, like the, the experiences in the rooms are definitely a big part of my life. And, um, you know, I... I can't, I can't think of something at this point, but um, I'm sure there are w- way many more topics and For sure. struggles of recovery. I mean, the main thing is like, I, you know, when you hear some of the old timers say like, no matter what, don't take the first drink. And, and that's one thing I've done 100%. I have not picked up the first drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I've regularly attended recovery meetings, no matter how sober, no matter how happy, no matter how great, I regularly attend meetings 
even when we're on vacation, I actually love going to meetings in other places. Really? You don't know the dynamics. You get to see what every group is like. And so I've been to meetings all over the world. Um, so that that's really important to me is regularly attending meetings no matter what. Yeah. Um, and then having service commitments like, you know, sponsees, commitments in the rooms. Um, not having that. I And maybe I'm just someone that if I, you know, maybe I'm just so, so sick that if I don't have those for like a week. Right. I, I also have a husband that doesn't want to deal with me. He'll be like, you know, honey, why don't you go to a meeting? Like, so and he'll kick me out of the house. So um, that's also helpful. Awesome. Well, you've definitely said some things that I needed to hear. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Wrap up question. Final question is just always, if you could say one thing to the suffering alcoholic like if they weren't going to hear anything else but this one thing what would you want to make sure that they heard um is just to come in and have an open mind and i have seen i have stayed sober through things that some people can't and i've seen people get sober with horrible things out there and i've just seen the miracles of of recovery and the main thing is that it's one day at a time it's not 30 years at a time. It's not a week at a time. It's just one day, just coming in and doing something different for just one day. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone. Again, if you have loved what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Spotify, share this with a friend that you think would be helpful, upload to your Instagram stories, all of the things that I said before, so we can get this amazing message of experience, strength, and hope out to those who need it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful, and thank you everyone who has tuned in and listened. And I will catch you all on the next episode. Bye. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. Thank you.